Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damien Garde, recording from STAT's New York City Bureau. I'm Adam Feuerstein, coming to you from STAT's worldwide headquarters in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's outpost in San Francisco. It is Thursday, January 9th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. Researchers just reported a record-setting drop in the rate at which Americans are dying of cancer. We'll break down the good news and what's behind it. Next up, we're going to talk to a biohacker who recently got canceled on Twitter over his controversial opinion about the CRISPR baby's scientist. Then our colleague Helen Branswell will join us to talk about the epic history of the recently approved Ebola vaccine. And last but not least, we're going to bring back the lightning round, this time for a special preview of next week's J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference. But first, a word about Stat Plus. Enjoying the Read Out Loud? Subscribe to Stat Plus to get stories like these. Stat Plus delivers daily market-moving coverage from across biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. Subscribe today to get access to breaking news, exclusives, and analysis from our award-winning team. Subscribe to Stat Plus today at statnews.com slash subscribe. And as a special thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener, enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD, P-O-D. So we're going to start off the first podcast of the new decade with some good news for once. The rate at which Americans are dying of cancer is down, record-breakingly so, in fact. So that's according to a new report from the American Cancer Society. Research reported that the U.S. cancer death rate fell 2.2% from 2016 to 2017, which is the largest drop since 1930. And for comparison, the rate has been falling at about 1.5% a year since 1991. So Rebecca, what's behind uh, this decline in cancer deaths? So the lead author of the report pointed to lung cancer, which seems to be the type of cancer that's accounting for the gains. And why are fewer lung cancer patients dying? Well, the author put forward two hypotheses. Uh, One, that fewer people are smoking cigarettes. Uh, Secondly, uh, we have better treatments, particularly better drugs. Now, there's a big caveat here. The American Cancer Society's study wasn't powered to identify causation. So we don't know for sure what's driving the gains here. And several researchers on Twitter, including Peter Bach and Vinay Prasad, questioned how much precision medicine, particularly targeted therapies, can actually be credited here. So, of course, cutting-edge immunotherapies and, and targeted drugs are saving some lives. But at a population level, new drugs get adopted slowly. Much of precision medicine has been shown to offer modest benefits measured in months. And other rising causes of death, like suicide and opioid addiction, might be muddying the data. So, Rebecca, what else do we not know yet about these numbers? So here's a big one. Assuming there's some meaningful level of benefit being derived from new therapies, is that benefit going to be durable over time? Right. So as medicinal chemist Derek Lowe put in a blog post, quote, it's an interesting question whether the 2.2% decline represents a bow shock of new therapies hitting a large population for the first time, and perhaps we'll be able to distinguish that in the coming years, end quote. And a bow shock, you may recall from physics class, is an abrupt and brief disturbance in a wave. In other words, a regression to the mean. So why does all of this matter? Like, why is it important to know the causes here? Yeah, so knowing what's really saving lives is going to dictate priorities and and how resources get allocated. It's also going to play a role in the drug pricing debate and already has. You know, it seems valuable to know how much responsibility these pricey therapies have in driving down deaths at a population level. So I think we'll be watching very closely for more research on what's going on here.
Next up, we're going to talk to a man with a provocative take on the CRISPR baby scientist He Zhangkui. So in case you missed it, the holidays brought a development in the case of He Zhangkui, the Chinese scientist who sparked global backlash for creating the first genome-edited babies in 2018. The news is that a Chinese court sentenced He to three years in prison, and he's also being fined about $430,000. So news of He's sentencing was largely met with the same reaction from the global scientific community that we've seen at every point in the development of this story, and that is sharp condemnation. The biohacker Josiah Zayner, however, has a different view. Josiah, as regular listeners of this podcast may know, is the CEO of the Odin. That's a company that sells equipment for do-it-yourself science. Josiah has made his name with a series of self-experiments, including that one time he crispered himself up on stage at a synthetic biology conference. So in an op-ed that Josiah wrote for STAT, he argued that He Zhangkui should not be villainized or headed to prison. Instead, he predicts that in 100 years, He will be viewed positively as a pioneer in the field. So as you might guess, uh, Josiah's piece got him canceled online. Uh, people on bio Twitter called the piece wrong-headed, irresponsible, and even dangerous. Another pointed to its, quote, galaxy brain stupidity. So we invited Josiah onto the show to let him explain himself and ask him a few tough questions. Josiah, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, what's up? I am glad to be here. So before we get into the crux of the argument in your piece, what has your inbox been like these past few days? And, and can you read us some, if any, of hate mail that you received? Yeah. So I received an email that was just a middle finger emojis. It was about <laughs> 20 of them. <laughs> And then it was followed up by another email with like five middle finger emojis. So I don't know what was going on there. So Josiah, let's go a little bit deeper into the substance of the criticism that you're getting. So in the piece that you wrote for STAT, uh, you write, quote, the big unknown is whether the children born from it will experience any harmful effects, though there is no evidence to lead us to suspect that they will, end quote. Now you got a lot of pushback on this on Twitter uh, by critics who noted that off-target effects of CRISPR are well-documented in the scientific literature. So what is your response to that? Well, I mean, huh, sequence for off-target effects, right? I mean, he did the experiments look for that. Now, some people might criticize and say, oh, well, he didn't do enough sequencing or something like that. But like, as far as we know, the data that was presented the only thing we really know about the two, there's a third child that we know absolutely nothing about, but about Lulu and Nana, is that uh, the embryos might be mosaics. But from the data that was presented, if we are to believe it, there was one off-target effect, I think, but they said it was nowhere near a gene. So let's go into another line that you got some pushback on. You wrote in your piece, quote, as long as the children who Zhangkui engineered haven't been harmed by the experiment, he's just a scientist who forged some documents to convince medical doctors to implant gene-edited embryos, end quote. So critics online pushed back on this. You know, they made the point that he didn't just fudge some paperwork. He deceived doctors, lied to the baby's parents, and, and broke the law. What do you make of, of that pushback? Well, I mean, again, all we know is that the parents gave consent. We've seen some of the paperwork that he showed the parents to try to give them ideas about the experiment. But besides that, again, like, I, I don't know, is deceiving a doctor illegal? Everybody's probably deceived their doctor in some way or another. It's, it's like, what are we going for here? Like, what did this person actually do wrong? If we're looking at it, you know, against the law, 
really all he did was, you know, forge some documents or, you know, in, in the case, I guess people were saying he practiced medicine without a license or something like that. But like, he didn't do anything else illegal as far as we know, right? Deceiving doctors as a patient, though, is very meaningfully different from deceiving them as uh, someone conducting human research and in, in especially uh, high stakes and in experimental human research. The stakes are up to the eye of the beholder, right? I mean, what's high stakes? How do we define high stakes? You know, here's the thing. Let's look at it just purely in terms of an HIV vaccine. So about 0.1% of the Chinese population have HIV, and it is a communicable disease that can lead to, uh, you know, many health issues and even death. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to stigmatize HIV. There are treatments that definitely help it, but let's compare it to tetanus, right? We all get tetanus vaccines. Before tetanus vaccines, about 580 people on average in the U.S. got tetanus. That's it. According to the CDC, 1 in 100,000 people experienced some neuropathy from the tetanus vaccine. 1 in 100,000. Now, is that adequate risk? You know, are we taking too much risk by, by getting the, the tetanus vaccine? I don't know. You know, that's up for people to decide, I think. That's up for you to give consent for your child. Now, is this any different by somebody giving consent to give their child an HIV vaccine, quote unquote? I don't know. You know, that's up for them to decide, I think. It's not up to us to decide. So one criticism that was less about the text of your argument and more about its implications came, I saw on Twitter from Stanford law professor Hank Greeley. And basically his concern was that, you know, for you and other people who've advocated for open science, whether you call it biohacking or not, the idea is to make science more accessible. Is there a risk to your underlying goals to link yourself to someone who's so controversial and someone so universally condemned? Like, might you be kind of hustling backwards? Here's the thing is like the majority of people don't look kindly on me or biohackers. I'm not I'm not here to try to impress the scientific community or get in with the scientific community or anything like that. Right. I'm here to reach out to the public and uh, interact with them and see how they respond. And the majority of people that I've interacted with, they have a completely different opinion than these academic scientists and bioethicists. And I think these academic scientists and bioethicists it would do them some good if instead of just trying to live in their echo chamber and interact with each other, if they actually went out and interacted with these people. Maybe it's just a basic question here, Josiah. Like, why do you think there were so many people mad, angry about your op-ed to the point that, honestly, we had emails asking us to retract your op-ed? You know... Honestly, I don't completely get it. You know, when, when I sent it in, I knew there'd be some controversy and that people would freak out a bit. Yeah, but I didn't expect it to be so big. And I think it's one of these echo chamber things. It's like the rule, if like 80% of people believe something, you know, you can say, oh, there's a consensus or something like that. And the evidence presented against it isn't that great. But when 99% of people believe something and there isn't any opposing viewpoints provided against it, that kind of makes me skeptical. There's got to be people who disagree, right? There's got to be. Josiah, don't you think it was more the renegade nature of this germline genome editing that really concerned people? The fact that this was sort of done outside of a clinical trial, outside of an academic 
controlled setting and not that, you know, maybe 100 years from now, science will evolve where we will be doing genome editing of the germline in a way that is productive for society. Sure. If this was done by a researcher at Harvard or MIT or Stanford, I'm sure it wouldn't be viewed the same way, right? Right. But here's the thing. What this tells us is that society is moving away from academia. This isn't going to be the only case, right? These things don't exist in a vacuum. Biohackers who are doing stuff outside traditional environments is only going to grow. So like, be mad at it. Don't be mad at it. I don't think it really matters, right? Because it's going to happen. It's going to happen more and more. And it's like, in a hundred years, you know, maybe academia will still hate this guy. But like, what about biohackers? What about the general public? Are they going to hate this guy? Or are they going to view him like a, a Robin Hood who stole from the rich and gave to the poor? Josiah, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Yeah, no problem. I appreciate it. When the Food and Drug Administration announced the first U.S. approval of an Ebola vaccine just before Christmas, credit for its development went to Merck. This vaccine, called Ervibo, is being used right now to protect people and save lives in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where a deadly outbreak of Ebola has been ongoing since 2018. So Ervibo is a landmark achievement for public health, but the story of its creation extends beyond just Merck to a cadre of academic and government scientists spread across three continents who toiled in obscurity for years to make it happen. It's a really amazing story of scientific perseverance and a bit of good luck. And it's been told this week in vivid detail by our stat colleague, Helen Branswell. She joins us now to tell us more about how Ervibo came to be. Helen, thanks for joining us. Hi, guys. Happy to be here. So, Helen, as you describe in your story, the scientific roots of this vaccine started with an idea and sort of a, a scientific break at Yale University in the early 90s. And then that work continued in a few countries that led to eventually in the mid-2000s, an experiment in animals that produced what scientists called thrilling data. Can you tell us about that process? So back in the early 90s, a scientist at Yale named uh, John Rose, who goes by Jack, um, was trying to create a vaccine backbone. He was using an animal virus that it can infect people, but it doesn't make them sick. And he thought it would be a terrific delivery system if, if he could fuse pathogens of other viruses onto it, that people could use that to build vaccines for influenza, HIV, all sorts of other different pathogens. Eventually, he got it to work and he shared his construct very broadly around the world. And it ended up in a lab in Marburg, Germany, where a young scientist named Heinz Feldman was doing some work on filoviruses, Marburg and Ebola viruses. Using that construct, they were able to fuse Ebola or Marburg proteins onto the virus and use it to sort of study what those proteins did. Eventually, Feldman was hired by the Canadian government to lead the special pathogens group at the Canadian National Lab in Winnipeg. And at one point in time, they infected mice with it 
to see, you know, what it did. And then somebody said, you know, let's let's just expose these mice to Ebola and see what happens. And lo and behold, the mice were completely protected. And they realized, oh, this is actually potentially a vaccine. So from there, they decided to test it in non-human primates, which are the best model for human infection. That work was done at USAMARID by a scientist called Tom Geisbert. Well, he infected primates with the VSV virus that had the Ebola protein on it, and then later exposed them to what should have been a lethal dose of Ebola, and they also all survived, which was like thrilling for them. But as Heinz Feldman, the scientist who was leading that work, said, you know, yay, great, but what do you do with your excitement? You go have a beer and then you get go back to work because nobody was interested in developing an Ebola vaccine. So Helen, the data are published. Everyone is thrilled with the data, but then nothing happens. And why? Why did nothing happen after that? Ebola is what is called a neglected tropical disease. It occurs, you know, sporadically in countries uh, sort of in a belt across Central Africa. At the point where this research was being done, the biggest outbreak ever had been 425 cases in Uganda in the year 2000. Most outbreaks were sort of two, three dozen people. It's a terrible disease, but it's not, you know, one of the big killers in the world. And there was zero prospect that a vaccine manufacturer could recoup the cost of developing a vaccine. So, Helen, in your story, you point to 2009 as a moment when the vaccine is used on a person for the first time due to an accident. Tell us what happened and and why this moment was important. So there was a German lab researcher who had an accident while she was injecting the mice with Ebola. And in the process, she pricked her finger with the syringe that she was using. It penetrated three levels of gloves and, and pierced her skin. And there was real concern that she might develop Ebola. So there was this urgent call. All the top minds on Ebola were on it, trying to figure out if there was anything that could be used. And the decision was that she should be offered the chance to take the Ebola vaccine that was being developed in Winnipeg, because there was already some data that if it was given to primates after they were infected, that it forestall disease, that they survived. She agreed to take it. The Canadian government agreed to send it. She was given it within about 48 hours. But it was never clear whether or not she had been infected or if the vaccine had essentially cut short the infection. But the thing about it was it didn't make her sick. So at least they had evidence of one person having been vaccinated with the vaccine. And that was just a little bit of safety data that made everybody feel more comfortable later on. So that was 2009. And if we fast forward to 2014, an Ebola outbreak explodes across West Africa. Why was this important to the eventual development and approval of Irvibo? This outbreak was off the charts. Nobody really had ever thought that you would get thousands of people infected with Ebola in an outbreak. And in fact, you know, over 28,000 people infected in that outbreak and over 11,000 died. It was spreading in cities, which was the first time it had happened. It really reset the understanding of how dangerous Ebola could be. As well, there were, you know, a number of healthcare workers who'd gone to volunteer from countries like England and the United States and Canada. And a number of them went home sick and had to be treated in their countries. And so, All of a sudden, a problem that 
was normally isolated to some poor countries in Central Africa, people started to realize it was potentially something that other countries would have to deal with as well. And it really, I think that motivated action, but also the scale of the tragedy in, in West Africa was so enormous. People were really looking for anything they could that might be helpful. So by this time, Merck has paid to license the vaccine in question and made plans to test it in West Africa. How do you run a clinical trial to prove the effectiveness of a vaccine during an outbreak? It's not easy, and it hadn't been done before. I mean, that was one of the big, big uh, challenges with Ebola vaccine, and it remains a big challenge for outbreak vaccines. The only time you can get human efficacy data is during an outbreak, and during an outbreak, it's so chaotic that it's really hard to do. It also had been previously argued that it wasn't ethical to do, but that position seemed to change in West Africa. People felt that it was unethical not to to try and therefore they they mounted studies uh, they mounted them quickly in terms of this vaccine 12 clinical trials from the first in man to a phase 3 were done in 12 months never happened before may never happen again but it it speaks to the urgency of the situation and the motivation of people to find the answer so Ervibo recently received approval from US and European regulators So now who buys this vaccine? How is it being deployed? And could you also maybe give us an update on the Ebola outbreak in the Democratic Republic of Congo? Yes, it was recently approved. It's been used in this ongoing outbreak since the beginning of the outbreak, effectively. Over 262,000 people have been vaccinated and they, you know, they will continue to use it. That outbreak, which is now 18, into its 18th month, you know, is an incredibly challenging outbreak. It's the second largest ever and maybe the worst ever in terms of the difficulty of operations. So far, about 3,400 people have been infected and about 2,200 have died. Um, in terms of your question about who would buy this vaccine, so there are a couple of possible ways of deploying it. It will definitely be used in future in Ebola Zaire outbreaks as well There are probably governments that will stockpile this vaccine both for use domestically if needed and also in case anybody ever tries to use Ebola as a weapon of bioterror. Helen, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So again, this is the first Read Out Loud podcast of the new decade. And whether you like it or not, we're bringing back the lightning round. This week, we're going to do a special themed lightning round to preview the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference happening in San Francisco next week. So in the interest of time, let's quickly go round robin style as to what each of us will be watching for most closely in San Francisco next week. So this is my 18th JP Morgan. There was one year that I skipped, but yeah, 18 JP Morgans. That's a lot of trips out to San Francisco for this conference. So what am I looking for? I would love like to wake up Uh, Monday morning, bright and early, and see a lot of news. Uh, You know, we're recording this the Thursday before J.P. Morgan, and this week has been kind of quiet on the news front, and we haven't had any M&A. Other than that, I'll be at the actual J.P. Morgan conference at the Westin St. Francis Hotel. And so there, probably high on my list is Gilead Scientist, because it'll be Dan O'Day's, their new CEO. It'll be his first time presenting at the conference as the CEO of Gilead. And then there's companies that I think have some 
really interesting drug launches coming up in 2020. And I want to hear from those companies, like companies like Amune, uh, Biomarin, Global Blood. I think, you know, that's going to be some of the more interesting things looking ahead into 2020 is these kind of big drug launches. The theme I'm going to be watching closely this year is health tech. You know, I think health tech companies have been sort of lurking in Union Square and taking meetings and presenting at spinoff conferences for years. But I think we're starting to see inroads on the conference's biggest stages. Uh, For instance, Verily, that's the life sciences unit uh, within Alphabet is making its debut on the main stage this year. And I think it raises the question, you know, at what point do we see Amazon, Google, Apple up on stage, you know, right after or before the traditional big drug makers? And I think there's also questions about how the rise of health tech is going to change the attendance of JP Morgan. You know, are more traditionally health tech investors uh, going to start attending in, in bigger numbers too? So J.P. Morgan is famously very crowded and a sometimes unpleasant experience. And San Francisco has, I guess, well-documented issues with respect to social policy and poverty and the sort of experience of walking around on the street. And the combination of those two things feel like they've come to a head in recent years with a lot of really high-profile biotech people saying that they are through with J.P. Morgan, that the experience is no longer worth it, in part because of the incredible escalating cost of uh, just finding a place to sleep during the conference. And so what I'm curious about this year is whether that's reached a critical mass to where you'll be able to tell, to, to where it'll seem less crowded, it'll seem less well attended, the buzz will have dissipated in any way. My feeling is no, but I've seen so many just anecdotal examples of people on Twitter and elsewhere saying they're not going this year. And so it'll be curious as to whether there's kind of a sea change as to the culture of the conference. And as a reminder, we will be on the ground in Union Square there in San Francisco covering the conference and all the other things that happen during the week. And that also means that we will be recording next week's Read Out Loud podcast from San Francisco. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Heisen Tepanado, who produced this week's episode. Alyssa Ambrose is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and what you'll be watching at J.P. Morgan. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And of course, if you like what we do, you can leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week. 